Can you hear me? All right, good morning. This is going to happen several times. I'm terrible at these kind of mics. Well, after Caleb has kind of hyped me up, I'm going to deflate all the expectation now, right? Uh, it's so good to be with you all this morning to uh, gather together with God's people, right? When we are not at uh, home at Temple Hills Baptist Church, we want to be somewhere worshiping with God's people on a Sunday morning. It's the Lord's Day, and it's a pleasure and a joy to see what the Lord is doing around the world and to hear from your pastor, Caleb, about what the Lord is doing here in Orlando uh, in this local church over the last three years. So it's my pleasure to be with you all this morning. The saints from Temple Hills gladly send their warm welcome. Your cousins, even though you don't know them, right, we are joined by the same Heavenly Father through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we are united and I hope you feel some of that brotherly love even from a distance this morning. If you're new to the Grove or uh, new to church uh, as a whole, uh, though I'm new, right, I'm not the normal preacher here, what I'll be doing this morning is quite normal and quite simple. I'm going to open up God's Word, read it, explain it, and apply it. Right? So over the next few minutes, what we're doing together is the most important part of a church service. We just want to hear from God as he instructs us through his word, right? So when Caleb talked about Omar being a great preacher, right, that's not true at all, right? You, you, you'll understand at the end of this, right? But I do have a great word, right? We all do. And so I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 73. I know the sister just read it for us a minute ago, but uh, I don't think it's too much to, to repeat that, all right? I need the word fresh in front of me. And I trust that even a second reading will have it fresh in front of us as we walk through it. So Psalm 73, I'm reading from the ESV version. I see you guys have the CSV, which is a great translation. So it might vary if you have a different translation. But follow along. I'll read Psalm 73 again. Psalm chapter 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. 
Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Now, as we study this psalm this morning, we want to notice a few things. First, notice its placement. So if you have a print Bible, you'll see that right over Psalm 73 are the words in all caps, book three. Right, it represents an intentional structure in the Psalter. The Psalms are organized under five books, each combined to tell one story of Israel's history. So Psalms 1 through 72 represent books 1 and 2 of the Psalms. Right? They tell of the rise of the Davidic king. And yet how that Davidic king, that Messiah-like figure, would be met with hostility. But then in Psalms 3 and 4, we find that the nation of Israel is not at home. Things are not going right. They have not kept God's covenant, and as a, as a consequence, God has judged them. And many scholars believe that Psalm 3 and 4, uh, books 3 and 4 of the Psalter, represent Israel's time in exile, displaced, ruled by foreign enemies, and yet they're still crying out to God still singing to God. A second, notice the specific singer we meet here in Psalm 73. We read it's a psalm of Asaph. We learn in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16 that he was appointed by King David to lead God's people in musical worship. He's the author here in Psalm 73 and in all the psalms stretching to Psalm 83. And as he pens this specific psalm, Here's what I think is his main point. The main idea of Psalm 73. Sinners might enjoy earthly goods, but will experience eternal sorrow. While the godly might experience earthly sorrow, but will enjoy eternal good. Now, I'm going to repeat that because I was like 65 words right there, right? Sinners might enjoy earthly goods, but will experience eternal sorrow. While the godly might experience earthly sorrow, but will enjoy eternal good. And so the charge for us today as God's people is not to be short-sighted. As we walk through this psalm, I think we'll see four scenes, which will be the four points of the sermon. Number one, we'll see a confident declaration. You find that in verse one. 
Secondly, we'll see a confusing dilemma. We see that in verses 2 through 14. Third, we'll see a corrected viewpoint. We find that in verses 15 through 20. And lastly, we'll find a contented man. We see that in verses 21 through 28. So number one, a confident declaration. Number two, a confusing dilemma. Number three, a corrected viewpoint. And number four, a contented man. Number one, a confident declaration. In verse 1, Asaph declares, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The psalmist shows us something here of his belief system as he makes several assertions here. For one, he believes that God exists. God is at the top of his mind in this psalm. This is not a man who moves through life unaware of someone over him. Yes, he's a leader of God's people, but he recognizes that someone is greater than him. And he doesn't describe him in, in abstract, fuzzy terms. A higher power, the man upstairs. No, he's God. Asaph is neither an atheist nor a polytheist. He believes that there is a God. And he believes that there is only one true God. Do you? Do you? Friends, we're not here this morning assuming that everyone is on the same page. Do you believe in God? Or have the political battles, the pandemic, the building collapses, the broken relationships convinced you that there can't be a God? There's just too much unrest. We'll see as we walk through this psalm that Asaph has seen some hard stuff too. And yet he still believes that God exists because he believes what the Bible says. Genesis chapter 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator and the sustainer of the entire world. He is over everyone and everything, both then and now. Do you believe in him? If you don't, then pray. The Bible says that faith is a gift from God. So you can pray right now in the quiet of your seat for God to give you the faith to believe in him. But the psalmist here doesn't just believe that, that God exists. Asaph expresses a deeper level of faith. He predicates something about this God. God is something. And as he cycles through the long list of attributes that he could rightly use to describe God, a holy, loving, sovereign, gracious, merciful, the one he lands on is good. God is good. Goodness is bound up in the very person of God. It's who he is. His very nature is good. And that's what the scriptures tell us. You might remember back in the book of Genesis and the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2. On each day after God had made what he made, he looked back like a proud parent and declared it was good. But the sun and the moon 
the earth and the seas weren't good in and of themselves as individual entities. They were only good in so much as they came from God, who is good. God can define what's good because he himself is the epitome of good, the very standard of good. The psalmist here isn't making some shocking new discovery about God. He's simply regurgitating God's truth about himself. God is good. And his goodness isn't merely bound up in his person in heaven. He's demonstrated his goodness to his people. The psalmist says that God is good to Israel, whom he describes as pure in heart. And not perfect in heart, but pure in heart. A totally committed to God. That's what Israel pledged to do as a covenant people of God. To love the Lord with all their hearts and with all their souls and with all their strength. And God pledged himself to be their God and to do good to and for them. And he's been faithful to that promise, Asaph says. He's good to Israel. But what's with the truly at the beginning of, of verse 1? Truly God is good to Israel. On the CSB, it's in the middle. God is indeed good to Israel. It's almost like this isn't simply a declaration, but a reaffirmation. It's, it's like the psalmist is trying to make a convincing argument. Oh, okay, but, but who are you arguing with? Well, I think it's with himself. Because we'll see starting in verse 2, Asaph has gone through some trials that were pulling at the very fibers of his faith causing him to question God's goodness. And he had to tell himself, remind himself that God is good. Saints, you're going to have to learn the practice of preaching to yourself. Talking to yourself ain't crazy, it's Christian. Because the trials of life will so test you, will so tug on your faith that they might lead you to doubt. And you're going to have to declare, based on what God's word says about him, based on what God has shown himself to be, what the psalmist here declares, that truly God is good to his people. Now, wouldn't it be lovely to just end there and go straight up to heaven? Right? With this kind of bold, heartfelt declaration about God at the very pinnacle of your faith. But then you go home this evening. You go into the office tomorrow morning. Or you go on another Zoom call for a meeting. And your confident assertions about God are met with conflicting experiences. What do you do when what you say about God, that he's good, is met with a harsh world where that doesn't seem to be the case? Well, that leads us to point number two, a confusing dilemma. Point number two, a confusing dilemma. Asaph knows the truth about God. Knows that God is. He knows that God is good. He knows that God is good to his people. He's got good doctrine. But, he says in verse 2, man, I almost fell away from believing it. 
my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. The words used there, feet, steps, remind us that our commitment to God is like a walk, a journey where we're intentionally following after him. But it's not a walk on smooth terrain. It's more like a hard uphill hike to heaven. Now, some of you all might go hiking. Some of you all might actually enjoy hiking. I'm more of an indoorsman myself. But if you've ever hiked up a steep hill, you know the dangers inherent with a foot slipping. Perhaps you've seen movies where, where folks are hiking up this massive mountain. And inevitably, to add drama, a foot slips. And a rock falls from way up and down until you can't see it anymore, showing how steep the drop is below. And then the person's left dangling, trying to find sure footing. It's dangerous. That's the picture Asaph presents of almost falling away from faith, away from trusting the goodness of God. And what is it that almost caused his, his steps to stumble? What is what he saw? My feet almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped when, the end of verse 3 tells us, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We're introduced here to another class of people, the wicked. They're contrasted with Israel, who were described as pure in heart in verse 1. You know, that's how the scriptures often present people, as there only being two categories of people, the righteous and the wicked. It's the way the first psalm, Psalm chapter 1, opens up the entire Psalter, showing that there's only two ways to live following the way of the wicked or following the way of the righteous. The righteous are those who live under God's law and under God's king, God's Messiah. The wicked are those who reject God's law and rebel against God's king. How would you categorize yourself this morning? How would God? Asaph saw the wicked apparently prospering. But everything that looks good is not good. Remember, Eve saw that the tree that God had forbidden was good for food and was a delight to the eyes. And so she took and ate of it. And she gave to Adam, and he took and ate of it. And all humanity has tasted the bitterness of sin ever since then. Your eyes can deceive you. But oh, they're so easily attracted to prosperity. I, our eyes are like magnets to the prosperous life, to the good life, to people prospering. And what specifically did Asaph see? Well, verses 4 through 12 outline some specifics. In verse 4, he says, the wicked don't have any pangs or pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They don't experience any sickness, no cancer, and no COVID. They die in their sleep, have peaceful deaths. They don't experience any hunger. They eat good, fine dining every day at Disney Springs. 
Their bodies aren't disfigured from starvation. They're plump and fit. In verse 5, he says, they aren't in trouble as others are. They live a carefree life. They don't have any worries about bills. Aren't wondering how to pay to send the kids to college or for the next big car or home repair. They seemingly have no stress. As a result, Asaph says in verse 6, they are full of themselves. They wear pride like it's an accessory and use their high place to harm others. He says pride is their necklace and violence, co violence covers them as a garment. They boast in themselves and beat others down. They've got it made. Even though they show no regard for God. Verse 9 says they set their mouths against heaven. They say in verse 11, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? If there is a God, he's either ignorant or impotent. We're doing things our own way without some acknowledgement or concern for some God out there. Look at them, Asaph says in verse 12. Look at what they're doing. Look at what they're saying. Behold, these are the wicked. And yet, they're prospering. They are always at ease. They are increasing in riches. God's supposed to be good to his people, to Israel. But as Asaph looks around, he sees Israel floundering and Israel's enemies flourishing. Who's God really good to? Is that a question you're tempted to ask as you look out at the world and see people prospering? The most irreligious people at your job are the ones being promoted over you. Your friend's Instagram stories constantly feature dinner at the most expensive restaurants, trips to the most exotic places, and they haven't stepped a foot in church in years. In fact, they think that you're a fool, a fanatic for your overcommitment to Jesus. You give too much time, too much money to that church. Young people, I wonder who your role models are. I wonder if the ones you strive to be like are athletes and entertainers because you see the glitz and glamour of their lives. Their lyrics and their roles that they play are dismissive of God at best and all out deny God at worst. But they stay fresh. Louis and Gucci and Jordans and all the rest. Perhaps you look at them. You look at their Maseratis and their Mercedes compared to your parents' minivan. <laughs> and you conclude that they've got it made. Can't it seem sometimes like the world is winning? Like the people who don't care about God at all are the ones being rewarded. What happens in your heart when you witness the wicked flourishing? What does it produce? What did it produce in Asaph's heart? We'll look back up to verse 3. Envy. 
Asaph says, I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know, one of the reasons I love the scriptures and the Psalms in particular is their honesty about the human experience. I mean, yes, the scriptures are written by men who are divinely inspired. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 tells us that men wrote as God, the Holy Spirit, spoke. But they didn't do so in a cold, mechanical fashion. I mean, these men aren't religious robots programmed to just auto-repeat spiritual statements like verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel. Truly, God is good to Israel. No, God uses real people and their real emotions to write his word. The very word he wanted passed down for generations. And so, yes, verse 1 is true. God is good to Israel. But in Asaph's life, it's also true that my feet almost stumbled because I looked at the wicked prospering and was envious. I looked at them and I wanted what they have. There's something refreshingly honest in that, isn't it? To hear the raw testimony of a believer. Yes, we cling to God. Yes, we trust God, but never perfectly. All of us struggle with sin. And Asaph here shows us how to be transparent. He lists one of the sins that none of us really want to reveal. You know, I think we've grown a, a list of acceptable sins that we're comfortable sharing with others. I mean, even if it's a little embarrassing, it's quite common to share struggles with pornography. You kind of figure you're not alone in fighting against it. You find it okay to share that you blew up at your kids the other day or that you've spent too much time on your TV or your phone. You kind of know what to expect. People sympathetic to your struggles and who offer to pray for you and maybe, maybe suggest some outward actions to stop those outward behaviors. But not many of us are as eager to share what's going on in our hearts, the things that people can't see. Not many of us are willing to share that I'm really having a hard time trusting the Lord's goodness. When I look around and see all my friends getting married and having babies, and yet I'm still single. When I see Amazon packages piling up at my unbelieving neighbor's front door, and yet my bank account and my pockets are empty. When I see the world able to freely express their sexual desires, able to enjoy sex with who they want, when they want, yet I've got to pin my raging hormones in. To be honest, on some days, maybe on most days, I wish I could trade places with them. I wish I could live their lives. Saints, strive to be a church where you can be as refreshingly honest with each other as Asaph is here. Be a people who are open with your struggles and share what's in your hearts. 
So the next time someone asks how things are going, don't think your only option is to give the religious-sounding reply of verse 1. God is good. You can share the buts of verses 2 and 3 as well. But I'm struggling with envy. I'm struggling with bitterness. I'm struggling with contentment. You can share what's going on in your heart. Perhaps what's holding you back from that level of, of struggle of sharing that level of struggle is the assumption that people will perceive you as being weak in the faith, as being spiritually immature. But that kind of transparent sharing of heart struggles is actually a mark of maturity. It's a sign that God's Spirit is working in you convicting you of sin and bringing it to the surface so you can share with others and so they can join with you in putting it to death. Asaph is open, honest, brutally so. He says later in verse 13 that after seeing all the prospering of the wicked, I felt like it was useless to have ever tried to live for the Lord. All in vain, he says, have I kept my heart clean? All in vain have I washed my hands in innocence. What's the use if you can live lavishly without God? Need an example? Look at the wicked, the unclean, thriving. But as for me, my experience as one of God's supposed chosen children, my experience is being stricken. He says in verse 14, tormented, rebuked every single morning. As you read verses 13 and 14, you can almost feel with the psalmist what he describes in verse 2. His faith slipping away. But that verse tells us that his faith almost slipped, that he almost stumbled. The Lord would not let him fall away. Instead, he refocused his reality. Which leads us to point number three, a corrected viewpoint. A corrected viewpoint. In verses 15 and 20, the Lord steps in and shifts Asaph's perspective. At first, he shifts his perspective from having a pity party for himself to prioritizing the well-being of others. Now look at verse 15. Asaph says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verses 13 and 14 had been the raw reflections of a man wondering if it was worth living for God if the only reward was suffering. But in verse 15, Asaph communicates that he didn't share those thoughts out loud at the moment. Why? Because those thoughts might have undermined the faith of others. So we see something of a, of a tension here, don't we? Yes, be transparent about struggles in the heart, there's great value in speaking, in sharing, but there's also great value sometimes in silence. Sometimes sharing what's going on in your heart 
might harm others' faith, especially if they're less mature believers. Remember that Asaph is a leader of God's people, which he acknowledges places on him a greater responsibility to watch what he says in an effort to watch over God's people. I'm saying so I think we see an important principle here. That the more spiritually mature you are, the more willing you should be to muzzle your lips for the sake of others. The more spiritually mature you are, the more willing you should be to muzzle your lips for the sake of others. Now, how do you know when to do what? Well, we need to pray for the Lord to give us wisdom. But maybe also a litmus test of when to speak and when not to speak is if my speaking is motivated primarily by me needing to get something off my chest, to vent, to let other folks know how I feel so that I can feel better. The focus shouldn't solely be on ourselves, but on our brothers and sisters, on how they might perceive our words on whether our words would build up their faith or belittle it or break it down completely. So saints, how often do your brothers and sisters here at the Grove Church come into your mind before you tweet, before you post on Facebook or Instagram, before you engage in an internet debate, before you openly share your viewpoint in a discussion? There can be a thin line between your being real and your being reckless. Be willing to count others as more significant than yourselves, even as it relates to your speech. God lifts Asaph's eyes off how he's experiencing the situation of the wicked prospering and on to how he might help God's people process the situation. But the Lord also changes Asaph's perception of the wicked's experience. In verse 16, Asaph admits that he's still having a hard time understanding how the wicked could be living a better life than God's people. Until, he says in verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. What is it that ultimately changed the psalmist's perspective? Well, it was a trip to the sanctuary of God, to the temple. It was attending corporate worship that altered his thinking. There he would have seen the faces of fellow Israelites going through similar pains, but singing songs of hope to God. There he would have heard the scriptures read and taught reminding God's people of his promises, his sure and steadfast promises to them. There he would have seen the altar and the sacrifices on the altar, reminding him of God's forgiveness of sin and thus assuring him that whatever he was experiencing was far less than what he deserved to experience. The lambs had been punished in his place pointing forward ultimately to another lamb, 
the Lamb of God who would come and take away all the sins of the world. There, Asaph would have seen, as it were, God. He would have had his sights set on God and thus had his eyes reoriented to see the wicked through God's perspective. Grove Church, don't underestimate what you're doing this morning. Don't underestimate the impact of gathering with God's people to worship God. And many of us get beat down Monday through Saturday at our jobs, at our homes. Many of us come on Sundays discouraged by our lack and those around us is lavishness, by our suffering and others' success. We come sometimes jaded, our hearts having been heavily influenced by the world's standards. And we need a reset. We need a paradigm shift like the psalmist here experiences in the sanctuary. So brothers and sisters, regularly come to church. Come expecting transformation. Expecting God to wipe off the fog from your heart, distorting your view of the world, and to give you new eyes to more clearly see things his way. And namely, Asaph sees, says that God has transformed his view. And when he did, he was able to see not just the wicked's present prospering, but also their future punishments. He discerned their end. He says in verse 18 that you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. It's interesting here. Asaph employs some of the same language he used up in verse 2. His foot almost slipped, but God kept him. But with the wicked, God intentionally put them in slippery places. Where Asaph steps almost stumbled, with the wicked, God makes them fall to ruin. And how does he do it? By giving them what they desire, what they want. The prosperous life filled with good health and fortune and riches, the life that Asaph envied was actually a sign of God's judgment. We read in places like Romans 1 that God's judgment is not always exhibited in a hell and fire, a brimstone way. It's often God giving you over to what you really desire. God giving you over to your gods. And what are the gods that societies throughout history have worshipped? Well, the gods of comfort and ease, the god of money. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 13, that the wide way, the easy way, leads to destruction. And Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The same ruin and destruction that Asaph notes here, the wicked falling into. 
God gives Asaph and us a full view of what will happen to the wicked. Yes, they may have stuff now, may enjoy ease and success now, but they will be ruined. Are you so sure you want what they have? How ill-informed and short-sighted it is to be envious of them. Are you jealous to receive their judgments? The reality is the psalmist should receive it. We all should. Because like him, we've all clamored after stuff. We've all treated God as our personal vending machines, thinking that if we put in enough good works, have enough faith, then he should spit out some material blessings to satisfy us. We all act as if what we deserve from God is only good from him all the time. When in fact, what we deserve from God is only bad all the time. For our sin, because we've rebelled against him, We've only wanted a relationship with God insofar as it materially blesses us. And when the well runs dry, when the bank account is low, when the spouse seems more distant, when the job possibilities are few, we pout, we complain. We're tempted to walk away from God asking, what have you done for me lately? We all deserve to be ruined, to be destroyed. The only thing that set Asaph apart from the wicked that he envied was God's grace. God chose Israel to be his covenant people and to walk faithfully before him. But Asaph's attitude in this psalm shows us that Israel was an unfaithful covenant partner. They rebelled against God at the first sign of hardship. Remember the rocky road when they left Egypt. Remember the report the spies brought back from Canaan. But God would provide another covenant partner who was faithful. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who really was righteous, who was 100% pure in heart. And yet he too was stricken and rebuked. While those around him prospered. Yet Jesus never questioned whether his holy life was lived in vain because he lived not to receive material rewards, but he lived as an act of obedient worship to God. And he died as an act of obedient worship to God. He died sacrificing his life for sinners like us. He died for our sins of envy and discontent. Our sins of grumbling and complaining, he died for all our sins so that we wouldn't have to experience the wrath and the judgment that verses 18 through 20 describe. But the good news is that Jesus Christ did not stay dead. He rose up after three days showing that his death was sufficient payment for all our sins and he calls all of us now to turn from our sins and put our total and complete trust in God, no matter what the circumstances around us look like. If you've never done that this morning, the Lord through his word is calling you today to turn from your sins. 
that will lead you to ruin and destruction and to turn to him that you might have eternal life. Saints, that promise of life to come, that perspective of eternity and what awaits both the righteous and the wicked transforms our view of now, transforms our view of God. It transforms us. Which leads to our fourth and final scene where we see a contented man. Having had his view on life corrected, Asaph comes to realize just how off he was. He says in verse 2, I was, verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. I treated you like a stray dog treats a homeowner. I only wanted to come around you if you had something to give me. Verse 23, nevertheless. That's a great word, isn't it? Nevertheless, even as wicked and as sinfully as I acted, I am continually with you. Not because of my effort. Not because of my determination to have you, but your determination to have me. You hold my hand, and you would not and will not let me go. And God is gracious, isn't he? Abundantly patient with us, passionately committed to us. You guide me, Asaph continues. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You wonder if this is the same man, don't you? I mean, earlier in the psalm, he connected God's goodness to God's gifts. And he began to question the former because he lacked the latter. But now there's, there's been a change. But not necessarily in circumstance. Every indication is that Asaph and Israel are still miserable. Still stricken and rebuked. Still being tormented daily by the sight of their enemies doing well. There's no changes in circumstance. But there's been a change in the posture of the hearts. This man has been changed. No longer is he clamoring for God's gifts. He wants God. God is worth more than all the delicacies and the delights and treasures of this world combined. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing, not riches, not gold, not clothes, not cars, nothing on earth that I desire besides you. God is enough for him, enough to satisfy him. Is God enough for you? Is God enough for you? Or do you need more than God? What is it that you've elevated above God as a necessity? What is it that the recesses of your heart long for that others have but you want? That you feel like you can't live without, can't be happy without? 
Friends, God is enough. He has saved us, set his covenant love on us, and brought us near to him where we'll be forever. The best, the absolute best that the godless can have is the riches of today. But then they and their riches will perish, will come to a ruin. But for us, for those of us who put our trust in God and in his son, Jesus Christ, we will enjoy eternal good in his presence. The gold and the treasures that were once so valued, so sought after here in this world, will become nothing more than the pavement that we walk on in another world when we'll be in the presence of our true treasure, Jesus Christ. Saints, live the rest of today. Live the rest of this week. Live the rest of your life looking not at what is around you, but what's ahead. Glory. Encourage one another by pointing each other, no matter what's going on right now, pointing each other to what is coming. Eternal glory. And let that ground us and fill us with joy, even as we experience sorrows now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promise that this world is not all we have, that this world is not our home, but that in you we have an eternal hope. Lord, cheer our hearts from discouragement from what we experience today, and Lord, point our eyes to King Jesus and the kingdom that he is preparing for us. Lord, set our hearts to repeat after the psalmist. Who do we have in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that we desire besides you. Oh, Lord, make it true that our hearts and our flesh may fail. But, Lord, may the confession of all of us be that you are the God of our hearts, that we will praise you forever. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen.